Our reading tonight is Galatians 3, verses 15 to 25, beginning in verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Jules, thanks. Thanks for reading. <coughs> Good evening. Let me add my welcome. I'm, uh, uh, my name's Matt, Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Uh, I'm a little croaky this evening. Uh, apologies for that. But uh, let's pray. Let's pray together as we begin. Our great God and Father, we've sung already this evening that you are the one who makes promises and your promises never fail. What a wonderful truth that is. And as we turn to your word, would you please be at work by your spirit, deepening our trust in your promises so we cling to them and live our life based on them, regardless of what life may come, whatever life may throw at us, indeed how we behave. Would we cling to your promises, we ask, and so give glory to you. Amen. Now, if you have just arrived in London for studies, or if you've been studying here a while, or just arrived in London generally, let me make an observation to you. London is quite expensive. Now, here's your choice if you've arrived to study, okay? It's a binary choice. Let me put in these terms. Here's your choice. One, parents or wealthy benefactor say to you, I will pay your student fees. I will pay your living accommodation costs. I will pay your ongoing costs, maintenance costs. Maintenance, you know what I mean. Uh, Living costs, that's the word. I'll pay it all. All of it. That's your first choice. Second choice. Uh, I'll pay your, uh, choose your fees, your accommodation, your living costs, if you're the top 1% on your course. Which do you prefer? One really is saying, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll promise you I'll do it. Uh, The second is saying, you do it. If you achieve, I'll cough up. But you've got to do it. I will. You'd better. 
Those are two very different ways of receiving income. And I'm not making that offer to you this evening. I'm very sorry to say that. Uh, Your parents may, uh, good on them if they can, but I'm certainly not. Do you prefer a promise or do you prefer to rely upon yourself? Or in the language of Galatians, do you prefer to trust God's gospel promise in Jesus Christ? Or do you prefer to trust your own ability to keep the works of the law? God's promise Rely upon yourself, works of the law. So here's the issue in Galatians. Paul had preached the gospel in this uh, region, and uh, they'd accepted it. He'd preached the gospel promise that Jesus Christ had done everything. He had lived a perfect life, which none of us have. But upon the cross, he swapped places with us. So he took our death for all we've done wrong, and we get given his perfect life, that status. That's the promise God makes to you. Do you trust that promise in Jesus Christ? But um, other guys had wandered into town, false teachers, and said, well, that's almost true. Uh, but you, gotta, you begin the Christian life by trusting God's promise, but you continue it, and indeed you complete it by your own obedience. So I don't know, we've got them there. I think they've probably appeared behind me. So at the top, you've got, there's, there's the truth. Faith in God's gospel promise, that gives you salvation. By contrast, these false teachers arrived in town and said, yeah, faith in promise, that's how you begin, but then you continue by works of obedience. You've got I will, God promises, that's the gospel according to Paul, or indeed, I have done everything for you in Jesus Christ, or you will. I've done some, but you've got to finish. You've got to complete it. It's all down to you. I hope you see those are two very different paths that you can wander down. And so Paul has written this letter to um, get rid of, to, to, um, to negate, to show why that second is wrong. All right? Now, this is not, I would say, just not a cerebral issue. You might think that's somewhat dull and academic. It is not. Even in the suggestion I gave you at the beginning, or the example, you, you can see that... That is going to affect you. That's going to impact upon your life. Someone says, here's the money and it's yours. Great. If someone says, you've got to be the top 1% or there is no money and you've got to drop out, that's stressful. That is a burden upon you. That forces you into the library, the laboratory, the whatever um, that your course requires. For hours, that makes you look around at others. How am I doing? They seem to be a bit better than me. I've got to work harder. I've got to nobble them. I've got, to, I've got to get there. That is stressful. Whereas trusting in the promise is very liberating. It's a life of freedom, which is uh, what the gospel offers. So not just an academic issue by any stretch of the imagination. Emotionally, it makes an enormous difference. And God doesn't want to live, live with us anxious in how we live the Christian life, in, in how does God view me? Is it all about what he's done in Jesus Christ or does it depend upon me? And the Lord does not want us to be uncertain. He's guaranteed 100% committed to us knowing he's done it in Jesus Christ. I will. I have in Jesus. Not you will. You need to. His love, his approval, his blessing does not depend upon 
us. It depends upon Christ. Now, if you are just joining us then, uh, roughly, roughly, the book of Galatians goes a bit like this. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul has to assert his own authority, uh, which he's done. Chapters 3 and 4 are all the theology before chapters 5 and 6, uh, in one sense, it gets very practical. But you can't just jump to the practical stuff because chapters 3 and 4 are like the engine of a car. Uh, and you can have the nicest radio, you can have the nicest wheels on a car, but you've got no engine, you've got nothing. Well, you've got an expensive bit of metal, but you've got nothing that works. If you don't understand the promises of God, and how they work in the Christian life, because it really is his promises that empower us to live the Christian life, empower us to change and to keep going. So you've got to understand this central section. And it seems here in our, in our reading tonight then that Paul is responding to this accusation or comment of the false teachers. Uh, and they seem to be saying, ah, oh, but look, Old Testament, God gave a promise to Abraham few years later, he gives the law to Moses. And that's what happened in the Old Testament. They, they began with a promise, but they kept going by obedience to the law. Mmm, Old Testament. And it's just the same today, they said. You begin with God's promise in Jesus Christ, but you continue by your own performance. And Paul is saying it was never that way. You've completely misunderstood your Old Testament. And let me explain to you how. Verse 15, let's get into it. Verse 15, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. So, for example, Aunt Agatha writes a will, and then Aunt Agatha dies, aged 90, and that's it. You cannot change her will. It doesn't change. The, the will, the covenant is set. You can't change it or transform it. And that's his point here. God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham, and nothing changes it. God doesn't change his solemn promises. So verse 16, the promises, I think he's talking about promises of Genesis 12, 15, 17, multiple ones that God makes. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed. You seem to be a little bit pedantic there, Paul. No, what I mean is this. One person who's Christ. All of God's promises to Abraham were always intended to find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So verse 17. What I mean is this. Excuse me. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Doesn't. Verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. I hope you're following it, but essentially there, there's your choice, verse 18. You can either inherit eternal life and the kingdom of heaven by, verse 18, law, your own performance, or by promise. I have done it in Jesus Christ. That is your choice. You trust a promise, you do it yourself. It's always based upon the promise, says Paul. And so an obvious question pops up, I think, therefore, verse 19. So why was the law given at all? Uh, And that's what he goes on to answer in the rest of the section. Look, I tried to, for the sake of uh, aid memoir, uh, put it in this term. 
Why was the, oil, why was the, uh, the law given? We're going to look at three things. It was given as oil to provoke us to sin, a jailer to make us despair, and a guardian to train us in manners. Okay? Three things. I'll have to explain them. Two of them are very obviously from the text. One is crowbarred in, but run with me. Okay? It's oil to provoke us to sin, a jailer to make us despair, and a guardian to train us in manners. That's why the law was given. Let's work through them and then see what it means for you and me today. First then, oil to provoke us to sin. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Right? It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Could mean to restrain sin. I don't think that's likely it. I think when you compare it to other texts, it must mean to reveal or increase sin. In other words, the law is like oil on a fire. You have a fire, you don't put oil on it. it go, if you were a very interesting sort of person, you could look around the different fire extinguishers at church. Uh, don't touch them. Uh, they're only they're a visual amenity for you unless you're qualified to operate them. Um, which is, I guess, there's a fire. But if you happen to be interesting enough to look through the various different fire extinguishers, we have a range. Because it's the 21st century, you have to have a range. And uh, there's water, you could squirt. There is foam, which is quite fun if you want to know. Um, or there's powder. And depending upon the type of fire, you, you spray the different ones. And if you've done your health and safety training, you'd be brilliant enough to know which is which. If in doubt, just if there's a fire, have a go. I would be, um, or leave it to someone qualified. The one thing you do not do if you see a fire is think, oh, brilliant, there's some oil. I'll pour some oil on the fire. Don't do that. Because you may be very naive in the matters of physics, but oil upon a flame. In fact, there's an idiom. You don't pour oil on a fire. That's what the law does. It increases our sin. It exacerbates it, grows it. Now, let me try and persuade you why I'm, I'm determined or, or resolved that that's the, uh, what he means here. Mainly through a comparison with the book of Romans. I think it best fits the flow of Galatians. He hasn't been positive about the role of the law here. But when you compare the similar argument he makes in the book of Romans and asks, what's the point of the law? Uh, Paul will tell us in a number of ways. I don't know if we've got them. So Romans 3 verse 20, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Or Romans 5, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass, sins, may increase. Or 7, 7, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So the law is God gives it to reveal how sinful we are and indeed to grow, exacerbate Sin. It is like pouring fuel upon a fire. So in one sense, sin is like um, uh, a moody teenager um, uh, watching YouTube all day long, dressed in black. Uh, they're sort of existentialist moody teenager. I don't know why I say that. Anyway, um, they're, uh, they're, in the, they're locked in their bedrooms watching uh, TV, all, uh, YouTube. No one watches TV if they're a teenager. Uh, what, is, you know, what is it? They don't even really know what it is. Um, they watch YouTube uh, and various things all day long, and um, they're moody. 
and they're angry just because that's where they're at in their life stage. And uh, there's a sort of rebellious anger lurking within them, but it lurks within the bedroom. Then, parent calls up. Time to tidy your room. At which point, <laughs> the anger that has been residing within blows, and all of a sudden, you're so unfair, you're so unreasonable, and out it all. This is this is cathartic for me, by the way. It's just cathartic. Um, uh, you know, out it all comes, and out it all pours. It was there all along. But the law, tidy your room, exacerbates it, increases it, reveals what was always there. That's the function of the law. So in that sense, it was like oil upon the flame of our sin. It provokes us to sin even more. That's what laws do. That's the first uh, a further question comes then in verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? It, well, you get promises which say this is how you can be, you know, have a relationship with God and know him and be saved. And Well, that doesn't sound like a promise. It's a good question to ask. Verse 21, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, he says. Because the second thing the law was, was a jailer to make us despair. Verse 22. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. A scripture there, I think, being referenced to, to God, God the one who gives scripture, has locked up everything under the control of sin. Why? So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Scripture, or God, locked everything up under sin. In other words, the Old Testament law was meant to lock God's people up, bring them to the point where they say, well, we, we're lost. We, 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 we can't save ourselves. We, we desperately need help. Yeah. Go back to my original example. So parents uh, said, look, I'll, I'll promise to pay you everything. But perhaps the same parent, not 430 years later, 430 hours later, says, uh, look, I, I promise I'm going to pay everything, all your costs, all your fees, etc." Actually, I've had a little thought. How about, um, how about you have to be in the top 1%? And maybe the student says, well, I'll give it a go. And gives it a go for the first year. And then says, there's no way I'm going to be in the top 1%. It's just impossible. And goes back to, to parents and says, do you know what? I'll never do this on my own. Can we go back to option one, please? Can we go back to... You promise, because I've tried doing it on my own, and I can't. Can we go back to the promise, please? And that was the function of the law in the Old Testament, to, to lock people up, to make them despair and go, well, if it's down to our own performance, we'll never be right before God. Lord, can we go back to the promises made to Abraham? Can we do it that way, please? The law... God's laws were never meant to make anyone righteous. They were never meant to bring anyone into relationship with God. The law in the Old Testament was meant to make people despair. Get them on their knees and say, help. Help. We never do it on our, on our own. Verse 23 makes the same point. Before the coming of this faith, before Jesus came, we were held in custody 
under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Again, okay, can we make ourselves right before God? No, we're locked up. How do we get out? You have to keep the law perfectly. I can't. Jesus comes along and says, I've kept the law perfectly for you. Do you want to trust in me? Yeah. Okay, I'll unlock the door for you. You're now free. The law was meant to bring people to the point of despair, so they turn back to the promise that God now makes in Jesus Christ. Oil to provoke us to sin. It was a jailer to make us despair. Third little thing the law was, it was a guardian to train us in manners. Verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Guardian, sort of in the first century, sort of like a babysitter, but a bit more than that. Uh, A young child will be given a guardian to try and teach them manners and morals, occasionally with a stick if they were a bit disobedient. Um, But there was a limit to what a guardian could do. A guardian could sort of coerce someone to behave a little bit better, but they never changed anyone internally. That is beyond them. A guardian was only ever a restraining influence. But, says Paul, now that faith has come, we don't need that sort of restraining influence. Because in Jesus Christ, he'll give us, as he'll go on to say, his spirit. So we genuinely can be transformed or changed. As one writer put it, the law is a bit like a cage. And if you put a lion in a cage... You can stop it eating the lambs that are sort of gambling around outside. You can stop it. But you'll never stop the lion wanting to eat the lambs. And if you let the cage, if you let out of the cage, um, that was the most feeble lion ever, wasn't it? Uh, You're in trouble. The law, in some senses, it can restrain some people sometimes, but it doesn't change them doesn't change them within their heart. doesn't give them fresh desires. It was never meant to do that. Christ, however, can. So what's the point of the law? The point of the law is to teach us not about salvation, but to teach us about sin. The law was never a ladder to climb up to God. It was a mirror to hold up to us. So we see what we're like. Left to our own devices, we'll never be people who are good enough for God to accept us. The law was forcing people back onto God's promises, so they cried out, help, help. Or as he puts it here, so that we believe God's promises. You see at verse 22, scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to those who believe. Or verse 25 Now that faith has come, we're no longer under guardian, but under Christ. It was always given to drive us to God's promises. Now that works at two levels, briefly. Two levels. Uh, One is there's clearly a temporary role for the law. So verse 19, this was only in place until Christ came. Verse 23, before Christ came. Verse 25, no longer required, now Christ came. There There was a period of salvation history. If we could put it in that term. There was a period in history for a thousand years, where God gave the law to Moses and it was an operation until Christ came. That's a thousand years God was teaching his people. 
You cannot keep my law. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot be good enough to deserve my blessing. A thousand years of that to sort of drum home the point. We got a lot of Old Testament to drum home that point, amongst other things. So it's there for a period to drive home. You cannot save yourself. That's the main way that Paul is talking about how it functions here. Now, I suggest minor way. Sometimes it works this way in people's lives. Sometimes. Not for everyone, but this is how some people become Christians. They try to live a very good religious life. 500 years ago, Martin Luther made this revelation. He tried to live a perfectly, perfectly good moral life as a monk. Couldn't do it. Despaired. And to the point he said, ah, I can trust God's promises. You meet it occasionally today. People have been brought up in sort of legalistic Christian families, which emphasize lots and lots about law or or that sort of Christian context. And they sort of, oh, I've given up on Christianity because I'll never be good enough for God. Well, have you realized actually it's about trusting God's promise in Jesus Christ? Oh, I've been waiting to hear that. Sometimes people from other religions, they try and be good enough for their God. And there's a wonderful message, message of liberation But actually, no, you trust God's gospel promise in Jesus Christ, that he's done it for you. Sometimes it works that way uh, for individuals. But for most of us, I guess it's not like that. And so what do we do with this? Because this function of the law as a oil, jailer, guardian, it was only temporary. And Paul would say, let me just jump in, give you one verse from next week. This is what you and I need to know. Verse 25, now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now more of this next time, but that is the most wonderful truth. And that is how the Christian relates to God as father. But we struggle sometimes, <clears throat> and we struggle to relate, for those of us who are Christians, on the basis of promises. Uh, one of the most significant things I ever read in my life, slightly dramatic thing to say, but uh, it's undoubtedly true in helping me get this. Uh, 20 years ago, maybe, uh, reading Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, and there's a little chapter on there about what it means to be a child of God. It is magnificent. He takes the story from Luke 15 of, uh, of the prodigal father, or the father and the two sons, and the son who wastes his life. Wants his father dead, takes half his father's money, goes off and squanders it. And then thinks to himself, well, here I am working, feeding pigs. This is terrible. I'm going to go back and beg my father. Look, can you just take me on as an employee? Can you take me on as a worker? And uh, you see the, the, the lad going back, rehearsing what he's, going to go, what he's going to say to his father, which is, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but let me be one of your employees. And the dad sees him and starts and runs to him. And the son says, look, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but just have me as one of your employees. And the father just embraces him and functionally says, you were never worthy to be my son. You're not my son because you're worthy. You're my son because you're my son. 
And Packer makes the wonderful point as Christians, we can often think to ourselves, oh, I'm not worthy of God's love. Oh, I've done it again. Oh, look at this time, I've really bogged it. I'm just not worthy of God's acceptance. And he says to us, you were never worthy. But I love you because of my son. And when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you look and see him there who's died to make an end of all your sin. And because the sinless Savior has died, my sinful soul is counted free. For, for God the just is satisfied to look upon him and pardon me. It's not about you. You're never worthy. You were never worthy to be my son. You're never worthy to be my daughter. That's not why you are. You are because of Jesus. Not you need to perform, but I will. I have in Jesus Christ. Practically, what do we take from this then for you and for me? Well, the law is still useful if you're a Christian uh, here today because the law still reveals what we're like and how we need to change. Uh, and for those of us who are Christians and maybe Christians for years, may have grown up as Christians and, and not known any other point uh, in our life when we've not been, we can feel quite smug about ourselves and God's law will reveal that we've work to do to change, not for God to love us, that's unchanging, but to change. Put it in these terms. Years ago, 15, 16 years ago, I was working in a church and I I had to do an all-age service, you know, congregation, all all different ages, and I have no idea, I can't remember why, but I bought two goldfish. It was the key illustration. Uh, Don't ask me what the point was. Uh, That was beside the point. Uh, But I bought these two goldfish and uh, no doubt they worked brilliantly at making whatever points they were meant to be making. But then we got them home and thought, we can't just leave them in the plastic bag to die. Um, that's a bit mean. So then went out to the local pet shop and bought a tank and a pump and, you know, plastic castle and all those sort of, you know, because they must love a castle, being goldfish with a memory of two seconds or whatever it is. Anyway, so we went and bought the kit and all, all the, um, so, oh, well, you know, and we named them Katie and George. They were our goldfish. Um, that's because, you know, I don't know about that. Um, that was uh, some friends of ours. Uh, we named them Katie and George. And there we had two goldfish in our kitchen and they were very sweet. Well, were they? Um, anyway, they kept us entertained. Well, did they? Anyway, they were there. They were there. Katie and George were there. And then one day they died. Uh, which is obviously very sad. Um, and we thought, well, we got quite used to Katie and George, and we spent, whatever, a bit of money on this tank and plastic castle. Um, and so we went and bought another two goldfish and named them Katie and George, not wanting uh, a huge amount of change in our lives. And within a couple of days, Mark II had died. We thought, oh, well, they were duff ones. Um, let's go to another dealer. And um, uh, do you have breeders of fish? Probably not. Uh, so we've got Mark III, Katie and George, and within a day or so, they died. And we thought, hmm. Uh, and then we asked a friend who also had goldfish. It was slightly odd. We were at theological college. Everyone's odd there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, they said, oh, when was the last time you cleaned the tank? Well, we have a pump. Yeah, but you need to clean the tank. Uh, and he came round and put his hand in the tank and went, And of course, all this gunk floats up. And he said, this is all lying at the bottom of the tank and it's poisoned the water. And there's a sense in which you and I can be like that. We think we're fine. 
until the law comes along and stirs up our hearts and we realize, oh, oh, no, I don't want to live like that. Oh, I don't want to obey God in that area. Oh, God says I need to bring this under his control. Oh, no, thank you. Oh, no, no, no. And it's slowly been poisoning us. We didn't know it was there. This rebellious attitude that still lurks within. But the law stirs it up. It reveals the sinful elements of our nature that are still there. So we can deal with them, address them. So do you see, therefore, how the promise, God's gospel promise in Jesus Christ and his law work together? The law reveals sin, but we can cope with the fact that sin is revealed because we know we're forgiven. It doesn't freak us out if we're Christians. Now, if you relate to God on the basis of your own performance, I will and you read a, a, a simple law, do not lie. You might think, but that's okay. I don't really lie. But someone says, yeah, but do you exaggerate? Do you retell what happened in a manner which is more favorable to you? Well, I don't know. Well, I, don't know. I mean, might get a little bit defensive a little bit self-righteous, if we're relating on the basis of our performance. If we relate to God on the basis of what Christ has done, we can say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I do exaggerate. When I retell stories, it's funny, actually. I've become the hero, um, and uh, they become the villain uh, when I've had a run-in. I'm not, yeah, it's true. I admit it. See, if, if you know you're forgiven, it allows you to go deeper into your sin. You can confess more readily because it doesn't freak you out. You're not relating on the basis of how well you do. So you can be more honest with people. That's one thing, I guess. Something like lying. Or Jesus' great examples. Don't murder. Well, I relate to God on the basis of how I live my life, and I don't murder, so I'm fine. Yeah, but what about hatred? Well, well, uh... But the Christian can say, look, yeah, I do. There are moments when someone says something to me and I just think, and I get angry. And I do. I find myself dwelling upon it afterwards and thinking, I wish I had said this back to them. But Lord, I I admit it, I do. I, I get really angry. I do express that level of hatred, murder in my heart. But I know I'm forgiven by you. And can you can you change me? See, when you know you're relating to God on the basis of his promises rather than your own performance, you can be honest and the law can reveal more of what needs to change within you. So for many of us, I wonder if we lack joy in our Christian life even, sometimes, not always, sometimes, it's because we can't admit the seriousness of our sin. And these two things reinforce one another. The more you could admit how bad your sin is, the more you wonderful you think Christ is as your saviour. And the more wonderful you think he is as a saviour, the more you can admit of your sin and confess it and change. So the, the smaller version of you, the bigger version of Christ you have, allows you to change and to become more like him. Do you see how law and promise can work together healthily in the Christian life? Don't you relate to God on the basis of how you live? 
Don't you relate to God on the basis of, of, your, of how well you keep his law. Relate to him on the basis of promises. He said, you're never worthy to be my child, but I love you in Jesus Christ. Once you've done that, yeah, allow the law to stir up the muck in your heart and reveal it and change. But it's got to be that way around. Faith in God's gospel promise in Jesus Christ means you're saved. And then you can turn to the law and allow it to reveal your sin. And then you turn back to God's promises and allow them to change you. But more of that in chapter 5 and 6. But I will, or you have to. The Christian says, oh, look, I've tried. I can't. I trust your promises in Jesus Christ. How wonderful that you promised to have done it all. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that for all you've done in Jesus Christ, and we thank you also that you don't want us to be uncertain of what you've done in him. You want each and every person here, to know, here tonight to know that if they trust in the gospel promise of Jesus Christ, that he has lived a perfect life for them, died for all their sinful errors for them. If they're trusting that gospel promise, all is done for salvation. You love us. We are never worthy to be your children, but we can never stop being your children. Father, would we trust in your promise and relate to you on the basis of your promise and only then allow the Lord to do its job of revealing our sin so we run back to you once again and say thank you and change me, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.